Jesus, we thank you so much that you are alive, that you aren't just um, just part of our tradition. You're not just a historical figure, but that you are a living God and you call us into relationship with you. Amen. Feel free to have a seat or stay standing if you want. It might get awkward, but your call. Hey, so I get the privilege of continuing on in this study through the book of Revelation. And we have um, been diving into it. And I think God has been pulling out all kinds of great things and applications in our life. And I, I hope the same thing will happen today. Um, today, I was just kind of, we're thinking about this idea of, of how great it is that Jesus is alive in us. We just got done singing that song, right? But I'm also reminded of how often in my life, I'm in a good position in life, yet I long for something else. I don't know if you guys have ever had a situation like that in your own life where things are going pretty good, but you kind of look at something else, somebody else's life, and you go, man, I kind of wish I had that instead of mine. When I was growing up, I grew up in Oregon in Pacific Northwest, kind of in the heart of the, the grunge era, right? And to be in style in Oregon in the 90s was relatively easy. You just had to look homeless, right? That was kind of the, the key look we were all going for. My problem was is I had like uh, a suburban kind of, you know, two parents that cared for me and provided for me. So I had to do a little bit of extra work to fit in, right? So I'd take my shoes and I'd get a brand new pair of shoes and then go out and take my dad's sander and like scuff them up real good. And um, I remember one day I was at this uh, concert. This it wasn't even really a concert, this little rock show in downtown Portland. And in the back of the room is this group of kind of uh, homeless street kids. And they had found some uh, like half-empty jars of frosting, you know, the kind that come in those. And they were just sitting there eating the frosting out of the jars with their hands. And I remember looking at them going, they're living the dream. (laughs) These kids have got it figured out, man. They're so real. They're so authentic. They're really a part of this scene. I'm such a poser. Oh, if I only had what they had. And I think about that now. I think if, if they could have heard the words in my head, right, they would have been like, are you serious? You're such an idiot. You don't, why would you say that? And in the same way, I think I do that in my spiritual life sometimes. The passage we're going to look at today reminds us that if we are followers of Jesus, that we get to be in relationship with him, that our future is set. We are going to get to spend eternity with God, connected with him in this beautiful scene. Yet so often, I don't know about you, but I'll speak for myself. In this privileged position I have as a follower of Jesus, I look down and I go, yeah, but that sure looks good over there. And oh, that's nice. I mean, I know this is great, but wow, these things are so attractive. And Revelation 14, I think, really gives us perspective on this. There's a couple of scenes that we're going to see unfold in in this passage. The first scene is on Mount Zion. And it's this beautiful scene of of God's people in relationship with him. Throughout the Bible, Mount Zion is is used both literally and uh, figuratively to be this meeting place of God and man, right? And that, though, is contrasted with this other scene, this scene of Babylon and and alignment with the beast that we've been seeing throughout this book. And and it's saying that, that Babylon, which, again, literally and figuratively is used throughout the Bible to really be... Everything that's anti-God, right? All the worldviews, all the world systems, all the things that we buy into that are contrary to God's plan in our life is oftentimes used 
described as Babylon and, and following the beast specifically here in the book of Revelation. And it's reminding us that these things are going to be destroyed. That it's, it's a pursuit that's, uh, that fails. So let's, let's jump into it and let's kind of keep that uh, in mind, those two images as we, as we read through this. So starting here, 14, Revelation 14, 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, the Lamb being Jesus, and with him 144,000 whose name, um, who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunders. A voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. I don't know about you guys, but this caused me to like stop when I read it. Like, it's this great sound of thunder and water and harpists. Maybe I've just never been to a good harp concert or something, but I don't think. But anyway, it's this overwhelming just sound, right? And it says this, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who had not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These who have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits from God and from the Lamb. And the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So we have this scene of Mount Zion. But then the scene kind of changes. It's a different image. And it says this And then I saw an angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And the voice said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who makes all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on their forehead or hand, he also drinks the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into a cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angel and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, the worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So we have this image of these three angels going over with these very strong warnings. And then to me, I think verse 12 is kind of the pinnacle of this whole. This is the application of this passage. It says, here is the call or the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, say the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, from their deeds, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked up, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice, who, had, who sat on the throne, Put your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, and he swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and this angel who had the authority over the fire, and he called in a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for the grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung a sickle across the earth, and he, grabbed, he gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and he threw it into the winepress of God's wrath. And the winepress was trotted outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, this is, uh, uh, there's a lot going on in this passage, right? And we're not going to have time to go through every detail and, and every image that's here. But I think that, that there is some application that, that stands out of this that, to me, is so clear. And it's this application, this contrast of the beauty of Zion and the brokenness of the world, the destruction of all the things that we hold on to. So let's first take a look at just this scene, this scene on Mount Zion and, and what that has really to show us, right? So gathered around the lamb is the 144,000. These are the same 144,000 that were mentioned in chapter 7, right? And then with them is the four living creatures and, and the elders. It's this great throne room around God. Now, again, there's all kinds of variations of what this 144,000 represents. Uh, it could be there are people who say that this is a literal 144,000 Jewish people that have become believers uh, of Christ during the tribulation period. There's others that hold that it's, it's a more figurative image of the perfection of God calling his people his church. And like even on staff, we kind of disagree on what exactly this means. But I think regardless of what you see, what you hold there, what applica- the application is the same, and it's, it's universal. This passage is reminding us that being in the presence of God is far greater and far more beautiful than anything else in this world. It's a place of hope, a place where we find our meaning and our purpose. So here's some things that that I kind of see in this passage. The first thing is that there is hope in a new song, right? These 144, they're they're gathered around the throne room and they're singing this new song. Now it's important to remember that this 144 has just been through all the tribulations that we've seen over the last several chapters, right? They have been through an incredibly tough time. They've seen persecution. They've seen struggle. They've seen beasts and dragons and and false prophets and all of these things. And yet, in the end, here they are. They're standing around the throne room of God. They've been redeemed. They've been made right. And out of their mouth comes these songs of worship and praise. These songs that they're just overwhelmed with, songs that we couldn't even know because we haven't been through their specific trials, their struggles. And what that shows me is that no matter how difficult our world is, no matter what struggles we go through, no matter how hard my life might feel, no matter how tempting different things might feel, there's going to come a day where I'm going to be standing around the throne room of God and I'm going to see God's hand, God's work, even through these hard times. And out of my mouth is going to come nothing but a new song of praise to him, a song of redemption. I've got a five-year-old, right? And my five-year-old sometimes when nobody's looking, when She's really, really excited about something. It could be something really basic, like she gets to stay up an extra half hour late, right? She'll just start singing. You know, if you've heard this out of a little kid, it's like, I get to stay up late, whatever her little song is. She's just overwhelmed with that. And I think that's the image that we see here, that when we realize that all God has done in our life, when we realize the beauty of his story and his redemption and how he has saved us, despite our brokenness and our failure and our sin, we'll stand back and say, praise you, God, and we'll break out in song. And I have great hope in that. That gives me, I think, perspective for the world and the struggles I live in. When I see the pain 
all around me. When I see the news and I, I go, okay, I know that God is working out these things. And I think in this is the good news of the gospel, right? This is what we see in verse 6 when the angel comes and it shouts out and it says, hey, here's an eternal gospel. And he says, watch out, judgment is coming. I don't know about you guys, but gospel means good news. And normally when I say good news, I don't start it out with saying judgment's coming, right? Yet the good news in this is now worship the creator. Turn to him. Repent. Because when we do that, we see our purpose. We see our meaning. So we see that here. Another thing I see here is that there is hope in the name stamped on our forehead. Right? It's interesting. I think... One of the things uh, that this number, the 144, shows us is in verse 7, you have 144,000 called by God. And again, they go through persecution, struggle, through wars, through all sorts of temptation. And here we get seven chapters later, and how many do we have sitting around the throne room of God? 144,000. Not one did God lose, right? It wasn't like, hey, well, most of them made it, so we're, we're doing pretty good. It's like when God steals us when God stamps his name on our forehead, that we are his, that we are redeemed, that we are not going to be able to go into the throne room of God because of what we have done, but because of whose name is stamped on our forehead. And praise God that it's not my name, right? Because my name could not possibly live up to the perfection that that is heaven. We've seen this really throughout history. That no matter how hard things get for the church, no matter how much persecution there is, when times are tough, when there's struggles from like governments forcing uh, churches into persecution, or whether there's conflict within churches that arise, that the church still grows and it thrives. Because it's not about us, right? The church is not based on, on our wise thinking. It's not based on our ability to unite and, and figure things out. It's not built based on how good our services are, how great our churches are, the reason that, that the church will grow is because the name of God is written on it. And the same thing for our own lives, that it is God who redeems us. It is God who makes us right. And I get a lot of hope in that. Another thing I, I see in this passage is that, that God is not done with us yet. Right, So it's very clear that it is God who stamps us. It is God's name who's written on our forehead. Our righteousness, our redemption, us being made right in the presence of God is wholly and 100% the work of God. And I think we should be humbled by that a little bit, right? Knowing that it's not about the things we do, but it's about the things God has already done in our life. Yet it turns around and it starts to describe this 144. And it says, these people did not defile themselves with women. Now, I don't know about you, but I see that, and my, my first thought is, what? Is this saying that, that somehow virginity is more perfect than the, other, than the rest of us, right, that are here, or probably most of the rest of us? Is this, is this saying that, that only, like, this is the, the highest perfection? And I don't think that's what that's saying. Uh, it's kind of funny, the, there's a youth pastor down in Southern California that, that writes a lot about youth ministry stuff, and... He says that if you ever ask high school kids what it is they want to learn about, right? If he ever does like an anonymous survey, that the first thing all high school kids want to learn about is end times, right? What's going to happen in the end times? The second thing high school kids are interested in is um, 
is what does the Bible say about sex, right? That's, that's on all high school kids' minds. And then the third thing that they ask is like, will there be sex in the end times, right? That's like the only thing that, that they're really interested in. And maybe you get to this passage and you're like, wait, what? What is this talking about? Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious that throughout Scripture, God has never um, belittled the relationship. In fact, he, he speaks highly of the relationship between a husband and a wife and the beauty of, of that relationship and, and all that it is. So while this could very literally be 144,000 people who have abstained um, and who have remained virgins in the midst of this time of persecution, I think what this actually speaks to is more generally is that, that those who are called by God are pure in their lives, that in the midst of an adulterous world, again, that's what it talks about in verse 6 here, right? It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon who makes the nations drink of the passions of her adultery. It's saying in the adultery and the brokenness and the idolatry and all of the ugliness that's all around us, God is shaping a people to be pure in the midst of that brokenness. That, that he is working out a plan to make us right. So often we, we think of God as the God who is our savior, right, who saved us and is going to save the place for us in heaven. And absolutely, we see that to be true here. But that same God is not just saved us for a future date. He's also working out his plan of redemption, of making us right, of making us holy. It goes on to say that there wasn't deceit found in these people's mouths, that, that there was no lies found in their mouth. And I think, again, that speaks to they didn't buy into the lie of the world, the lie all around them. Instead, they stayed focused on Jesus, who we know is the truth. And it says they followed him day and night, that everywhere he went, they were walking with him. See, I think that's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus saves us and calls us into such a tight relationship with him. As we follow him, as we learn from him, as we follow him around, we become more and we become more like him. And he invites us to do that. I, I used to know this woman. I worked at this restaurant, and this woman had inherited a bunch of money. She's a very wealthy woman. And, but she was a little bit interesting. She followed the Moody Blues, the rock band, around wherever they went, right? And she had a thing, a crush or whatever you want to call it, on the lead singer of the Moody Blues. And she would, like, find out where they were going to be playing in concert. And she would go stay in the hotels that she thought that the band would probably stay in. And then she would just wait in the hotel bar, hoping that they would walk past her. And as they walked past, she believed that they would share just kind of a magical look at each other. And then she would tell me stories, oh, you wouldn't believe it. I was at this venue, and I got to ride in the elevator with him. And we didn't say anything, but we just shared. And I look at that, that's so sad, right? Because it, was, it wasn't real. It, was this, it wasn't a true relationship. And that guy was just a rock star. And you could even argue if a star is the right word for it. But it was a, a rock musician, right? Yet God, creator of the universe, Jesus himself says, follow me wherever I go. Commands us to do that. How amazing is that? And as we follow him, he points out stuff in our life that's broken. He shows us stuff that's not right. He shows us the impurity, the funk, the filth in our life and says, no, this is what I want for you. He teaches us truth. And so I have a lot of hope that at Mount Zion, there's this picture that God is not done with me yet. That he is continuing to work in my life because I got a lot of work still to be done, right? But this image is contrasted with Babylon. 
right? It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And, and Babylon, again, I think it's not just about one nation state. It's not just about one place. It's not about Babylon or Rome or Russia or whatever over the years people have tried to put it in. It's all the broken world systems, all the lies that we buy into. And one of the things I see here is that Babylon is sexy, right? I, I thought about using a different word, something a little bit more, you know, church correct, you know, Babylon is attractive or Babylon is compelling. But the word, I think, the image that we see here in this verse is that Babylon is calling all the nations of the world to drink from the, pa- or to drink from the passions of her sexual immorality. Some of you might have even lusted right there just thinking about what that even means, right? I mean, this is a very descriptive word. And I think it speaks to just in general how compelling and how desirable all the things are that are around us. That even those of us who are followers of Jesus, that we look at these things and we we desire and we want to sin in that certain way. We want to believe these certain lies. We want to pursue these different things. We want to find our fulfillment and our meaningness and our happiness in things other than Jesus. I personally... I want those things so often in my own life. I want to believe that everybody's okay and everybody can just believe whatever they believe and that's good enough. Yet, it's not real. It's not true. It might be attractive, but it's broken. And so I think Babylon, it, it's, it's sexy. It draws us to, to it. Um, this uh, couple weeks ago, I was at men's retreat with some of you guys. And at Men's Retreat, we had to break up into these different workshops, right? We had these three options. And, and uh, we had to go to two of the three. So there wasn't really getting out of it altogether, right? And one of the workshops, the safest one was on finances. That one was pretty safe. You know, we all felt okay going there. And then you had a workshop on anger management. That one was a little bit more personal. But then the third workshop was on sexual purity, right? And it was embarrassing. All of the guys walking up to us, we were all like, head down, like, oh, no, nobody sees us walking into the pervert room, right? <laughs> and, and, and you go into this room, and what was amazing to me is as I'm sitting around this room, I'm looking at all the guys in there, and it wasn't like there was just one demographic of guy there, right? It wasn't just young guys. It wasn't just single guys. It wasn't just dirty old men. It was all of us. <laughs> and we're sitting in this room, and it didn't matter if we had been um, had victory in our life for 20 years. We had purity in a certain area of our life or, or we were in the midst of the battle right then. We all knew that these things had a hold of our life and we had to be on guard against them. And I know this just isn't guys, right? This is ladies too. This is all of us. And it's not just sexual things. It's all the things of this world they pull at us. Maybe here in the Silicon Valley, maybe some of the things that are most desirable to us is just this, this constant pursuit of success and worth and value in our job. Maybe it's working 80 hours a week so that someday our company will go public and we'll become multimillionaires. Or maybe it's being the most creative and most innovative person. And not that those things in and of themselves are wrong, but they become our idols. They're what we put our entire focus in. And I think this passage... It reminds us of what they truly are. And it's not just that these things are sexy, but these things are actually a mirage of destruction. Right? They look good. They look attractive. You can actually convince yourself that they're right and they're okay, but in reality, they lead to brokenness. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. It says, anybody who receives the mark of the beast, your end is destruction. It's eternal hell. That there's going to come a harvest time where all the world, no corner of the world is going to be left and all going to be harvested and destroyed. 
And I think we need to hear that because so often we just go about our day and we don't think about the brokenness of this, these things that we buy into, how ugly they really are. I remember um, the first time I ever rode Magic Mountain down in Disneyland, right? And I remember just thinking it was the greatest roller coaster ever. I'm riding this thing, and it's just, woo, this is awesome. And so I get out, and I get back in line for it right again. I'm going to ride it again. And halfway through the ride, the ride stops, and all the lights come on. And I realized it was just a total mirage. It was like a little kid roller coaster in a dirty warehouse, right? Like what I thought was so cool was really nothing. And I think this passage is turning the lights on to the the values that we have, saying, hey, the lights are coming on. And this world that you hold on to, these values that you have, they're so temporary. They're so broken. They don't last. Their destiny is destruction. They're already fallen. So get them out of your life. In this, this final part of this passage, it talks about um, a grape harvest, right? And it uses really vivid imagery, just really challenging imagery. In fact, I read it and it, it's, it churns my stomach. It says all these grapes are harvested and it's using this grape image. And then it says all the grapes are thrown into the wine press. And then it doesn't even like use imagery anymore. And it says, and the blood came up to the bridle of the horse and out of the wine press flowed a river, 187 miles long of blood. And I I ask why such vivid imagery? And I think this imagery reminds us that the destruction of all the worldviews, it says the, the harvester went out over all the world. And anything that is not part of the plan and the will of God is brokenness. It's destined to be thrown in the wine press, to be trotted out. That's the next kind of point I see here is that Babylon's destruction is real and it's eternal. There's a lot of images that we see here in in the book of Revelation. Um, Yet it's hard to get around this one, right? That it's talking about hell and it's talking about it as an eternal place. Um, There's different theologies, right? Some theology I, I hear and I just, I love like that this theology of salvation that God has saved me, I I like that one. But hell is one of those that I kind of wish I could just get rid of, right? Go, yeah, we believe all of this, but hell, especially eternal hell, no. I mean, think about it. So many of the world religions of our world, we're good with eternal life, right? We've got heaven or nirvana or reincarnation, this idea that life continues on for eternity. But the idea of eternal hell, I think, drives us all. It's hard. It's a hard picture to get around. Yet, God is showing us here, and I think he's showing us because he wants us to see the brokenness of this worldview, that it's not just not a good idea. It's not just not the best, right? Sometimes we say that, you know, good is the greatest enemy of great, and, you know, we kind of say, okay, well, some lifestyles are better than others, And I think what scripture is teaching us, no, anything that is not Christ, anything that is not Jesus is nothing. It's worse than nothing. So then there's some points really of application, some things that I think it's not just a story for us to hear, but things that that we need to do and to to change our, our perspective. And the first thing here I see is that 
Babylonians need to look to see the creator. That first angel comes down, right? And he says he's got this eternal gospel, this good news. And he says, hey, watch out. Judgment is coming. So turn and worship the creator. Look up and see the God who made you. See the brokenness, the sham that is all around you. And I think for those of us who might not be followers of Jesus, who might not believe in the message of the gospel, there's a message here that's saying, turn to Jesus. That all the things that you do in life, all the values you have, all the things that you find so important, at the end, at the judgment of Jesus, will they last? And put your faith in Jesus. Look up to him, the one who created all things. And there's another application, I think, that's maybe an application for those of us who are believers, who are Christians. And it's that this, it's that Mount Zion will be, ama- will be amazing. Babylon will be destroyed, so endure. Right? It goes through and it, it shows us all these things. And then in verse 12, it says, Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. It's saying, I've shown you this picture. I've shown you the beauty and the perfection of what life with Jesus would be like. I've shown you the brokenness of this world all around you. So endure, hold on to the things that matter. But I know for me, so often, I stand here, you know, kind of figuratively in relationship with God on Mount Zion. And maybe I kind of look down and go, yeah, this is really good up here, but a little bit of that in my life would be all right. And that looks pretty good. Or a lot of times it's not even me consciously thinking about it. It's when I take my mind off of walking with Jesus, following him wherever he goes, I realize that I just slowly drift over here, right? And I think the message in this passage is endure, keep focused on what matters, keep focused on what's important, keep focusing on what brings true life and meaning. I imagine it a little bit like, uh, imagine a river, right? This is kind of a rushing river. And imagine you're holding on to a rock right in the middle of this river. And as you're holding on to this rock, it, the river is swift, right? And it's kind of beating against you and it's tiresome. And it's overwhelming at times. And I think that sometimes like the Christian life, it's, it's exhausting, it's tiresome, and you're just kind of holding on. And then at the same time, in the river all around you is people on nice little float tubes out for a nice fun time, right? Going, dude, this is great. Why are you holding on to that rock? Get with the flow. Everything is going this way, and you're hanging on to that rock. Why? Let go. This is so much easier here. And I think this passage is reminding us to know endure because right around the river, the turn of the river is a waterfall, right? These things that, that seem so good, that seem so beautiful, that seem so attractive, that seem so logical, that seem so intelligent, so sophisticated, these things are, they're, they're going to end in destruction. So maybe some of us, maybe myself, I think one of the thoughts I have is just, okay, what are those things of Babylon that I hold on to? What are those things that I value so deeply that I don't want to get rid of, that I need to let go of, that I need to continue to endure and be faithful to the commandments of Jesus and the faith. Or maybe for some of us, that's, it's not a question of endurance because you're still not sure that you, you believe this whole Christian message. And maybe today's a day that we wrestle with that. Maybe today's a day we wrestle with the idea of putting our trust and our faith in Jesus, admitting 
our inability to do it on our own, believing that it's only him who can do it and choosing him, knowing that he will mark us, that it says that he writes his name on our forehead. Let's just take a moment and just kind of contemplate what God is telling us maybe this morning, and then um, we'll close in prayer. God, we, we know we need you, yet it's, it's so hard to see that. In fact, it's so hard to even see the areas of my life and our life where we're, where we're um, grabbing onto things that um, are mirages, that aren't real, that don't have value, those sins, those brokennesses that we just feel like we need for survival or existence. I just pray in my own life that you point those out to me in the life of our church that we see the beauty of who you are and what relationship with you looks like and just um, that we're compelled to that that we're compelled to follow you to put our faith and our trust in you Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.